This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. A lot of times when the conversation gets really amped up and I can tell people are sliding back into their brain stems, I might actually cause for a pause and ask for us all just to take a couple deep breaths and notice what we're feeling, like where we sit mm-hmm. at in our bodies, right? Look around. Look around. These are the same colleagues we've been with, you know, all year. Nobody's going to be thugging on anybody. We're not there. But notice that we're feeling a little bit amped up and affectively um, opened up, right? That's part of the dimensions of this learning. So we name it, we acknowledge it, and then we move forward, right? Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two, interchangeable. White ladies! One, two, two, interchangeable. White ladies! Inter- interchangeable. In- interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan. So we are very excited for today's episode. Our essential question for today is, how can educators intentionally make space for challenging and engaging conversations in the classroom, be it virtual, hybrid, or in-person? So we are actually joined by two guests today. Our first guest is Milton Reynolds. He is a San Francisco Bay Area-based career educator, author, equity and inclusion consultant, and activist. His activism has been devoted to to disrupting systems of racial injustice with a focus on juvenile justice reform, law enforcement accountability, environmental justice, youth development, educational transformation, and disability justice. His life's efforts are are devoted to creating a more just world in which all people are valued and treated with dignity. Uh, our second guest today is Stacy Kurtzman. Stacy is a veteran, veteran educator and has worked with schools and nonprofits around the country and internationally developing partnership-based programming for students and learners. Her work focuses on asset-based approach to identity development, and she believes deeply that all learning is reciprocal in nature. She is the Dean of Equity and Education and Social Impact at the Castilla School, I'm going to check on that, the founder of P-Cube Consulting, and through which she works with schools, nonprofits, and corporations to identify opportunities for growth and cultural shifts in the DEI space. Can you say the name of your school again? I feel like I completely ruined that even though I had practiced beforehand. <laughs> you didn't. Good morning. You didn't ruin it at all. It's, we say we say Castilea, but I think this, you spoke Spanish and someone speaking Spanish just looked at it and the pronunciation might be Castilleja. So I think you did just fine because we're confused <laughs> anyway, but we say Castilea. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Well, we're so excited to have both of you on the show today. Thank you for welcome. So our conversation today is actually kind of a follow-up. Um, Milton, Stacy, and I had a conversation um, on a panel a few weeks ago called Engaging Conversations Online and Off as part of the OC Social Studies Conference. And so we really felt like we had just started to get rolling with some of the conversation that we were having and um, some of the questions we were answering. And then, of course, an hour went by and suddenly we were done. So we wanted to do a little bit of a follow-up and kind of see where that took us today. I was hoping both of you could just start us off with simply telling us a little bit about your journey. Um, what brought you to equity and justice work? You want to take a first stab at that, Stacey? <laughs> um, Milton Reynolds brought me. <laughs> um, I think that I, I guess the, the story that sits with me that first comes to mind is I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and grew up as um, a white identifying little girl in a in a culture that was delineated by apartheid by an apartheid regime and I grew up in a family that um, understood that that was not the right way for a society to be or evolve so I think like when that's when that's the water you swim in and it's so clearly delineated and there's there's nothing that is hidden behind um, you know ideas that like portend one thing, but people are living a different Mm -hmm. reality. It was, it's just, it was literally black and white um, with some sort of colorism in there for some people. I think that that has shaped my entire life since then. Mm. Yeah. And I guess, so it's interesting. Stacey speaks about navigating space because I would argue that my 
life experiences are similar. Uh, you know, my parents, certainly my, my father's side of the family left the South, uh, as did many families as part of the Great Migration, you know, to flee basically racial terror in the South. And so I grew up out here on the West Coast, you know, in the suburbs. And, you know, my parents, like a lot of other folks, were trying to get their kids access to assets. But what that meant is that I grew up certainly from middle school on in a community that had historically been redlined. So a lot of my experiences in the classroom, I was like a, like a raisin in a bowl of rice. And so I had lots of questions to ask, but the classroom wasn't really a place where I could find answers. And so as I grew older, I always sort of took to school it, it kind of a rakish angle because I knew that mm -hmm. there were certain narratives being peddled that were not consistent with my lived experiences, nor the ex conversations that I was having at home. And so um, my sensitivities as an educator are rooted in an understanding of what it's like to not have full mm. membership in a classroom and to have the classroom not be a place where I can find answers. But in many oh. cases, I had to protect myself from the narratives. Not that they were necessarily driven uh, by animus, but it occurred to me very early on that my teachers weren't reliable narrators in the sense that they were inhabiting a story that uh, I could easily inhabit. We were, we're almost always operating with counter narratives. So, um, mm -hmm. and I've always been curious. And so, you know, for me, the equity work seems to be a place to, to, to root myself because it's, it's really about holding complexity. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I've never seen a U-Haul headed skyward. So the idea that I'm going to spend my life chasing money just doesn't make a lot of sense. I figured I'd find some decent problems to solve. <laughs> so it, it sounds like it, and it, you know, your experiences are that you have been, both of you have been in this work for a lifetime, right? Like this thinking of racial injustice and equity. How, how have you both experienced, has it changed, right? So has this work changed? And if so, how has it changed? And if not, what is that experience like? Yeah, I think a natural progression from what Milton's saying, um, I think what you heard me say was that as a little girl, before I moved to the United States, um, when I was sort of starting elementary school, I lived in a world where I could see the differences. And then, you know, what I, what, what I heard from Milton, right. Was that like, um, he felt them, but we were being told this narrative as we went to school that like these differences didn't exist. And so in answer to your question, I'm going to say that, then moving to the United States, I remember being in a, in a social studies class as a mm -hmm. elementary school kid. And there was a multiple choice question about is America a melting pot or a salad bowl? And I was like, it's totally a salad bowl. And I got it wrong. And my teacher mm -hmm. was like, you're wrong. We're a melting pot. Like we're all in this together. We mush around. We have the same like heat everywhere. And I was like, for sure, we're a salad bowl <laughs> and I'm a tomato and that girl's lettuce. And this multiple choice thing is screwed up. And I think where we are now, like fast forward, I wish I could say 20 years, but probably 40 years or whatever it is. Um, fast forward, like, I think we're finally realizing that I was right. We're a salad bowl. And um, that that's exciting because we're moving from this colorblind space into really starting to understand the value of all the different, I mean, sorry to go in this like really basic metaphor, but like the value of all the different things in the mm -hmm. salad and that we need all our <laughs> vitamins and et cetera. And so, um, I think that has, is really a powerful shift. And I am starting to mm -hmm. see that in the affinity group work schools are starting mm -hmm. to do, et cetera. Yeah, I, I would, I, my take on it is similar to Stacy's in that, you know, I guess I started actually doing the work maybe 30 years ago, maybe a little bit more than 30 years ago. And at that time, people weren't doing the work proactively. It was, mm -hmm. it was almost like we were ambulance chasing and I don't want to say mm -hmm. it was we weren't opportunists in the sense that there were very people that very few people that were willing to do the work. Um, and again, you know, we were sort of ensconced in a colorblind sort of space. And so one of the parameters of that is that are one of the implications of that is that people that surface the issues then are the problem rather than the issues being the problem. And so now, mm. you know, what, what Stacy said is like in this moment, one of the things that's most powerful and, exciting to see is a shift in the discourse away from a sort of individualistic <clears throat> preoccupation with um, 
or even a, a definition of, of racism, sexism, homophobia, all that is sort of individualistic behaviors, now moving into a way that will eventually allow us to understand differential racialization or differential identification. Um, but it's going to take a while for people to inhabit that space. And I think one of the things that's happened in recent years is there's a lot more practitioners in that space. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of them are operating primarily with credentialed knowledge and don't mm -hmm. necessarily take a dive into the deeper theoretical uh, and historical framings that are necessary, I think, to be able to do the work with integrity um, and to shift people's schemas. I still think there's some contamination with like, you know, oh, changing hearts and minds kind of thing. And, and again, you do want to shift people's intellectual schemas, but I think the preoccupation with empathy and feelings to me sometimes is a little bit weak. And I still think there's going to be, you know, a lot of that bubbling around, you know, and, and you know, feelings don't pay the bills, right? It's, it's about <laughs> dealing with the reality of injustice uh, yeah. and potential racialization. But also it's about time to start thinking about reclaiming the value of all the human lives and all the human capital that we squander because of these systems that are predicated on reinforcing hierarchy rather than actually cultivating talent as though it all has value because we're not in that mm -hmm. space yet. And I think we have to be clear about that. And it's easy to slide back into comfortable norms. And so I, I worry about the folks that think they're going to read one or two books and also they're going to get it, you know, mm -hmm. which I think that we're already seeing that. Right. I think that we're seeing the, the, like the wave of the George Floyd. And I do think that there was a pivotal shift, right. Globally and in our society but I think that we're now seeing that downturn, right? Where it was like the masses became outraged and there was this huge movement. And now it feels like maybe the, the group um, of people that were doing the work, right? And already moving this needle gained a couple new people. But the, for the most part, I think that people have kind of gone back to the, the usual, the norms, right? Like what feels comfortable and feels good um and like their comfort zone and I that I've been thinking about that a lot like the last week um of man the the urgency in the work with the masses feels like it's already dropping off hmm. that's interesting um I don't I can I can only speak from from my community at this moment because I I agree with you like the protests ebb and flow. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing some more protests now in this moment. But mm -hmm. in, in in my school community, and um, and maybe that's because Milton and I are working hard. But in at Castellet specifically, he's he's helping to do some work there. Um, we're keeping the pedal to the pedal. I mean, and people are really uncomfortable in a really powerful, mm -hmm. exciting way. I think it. I think I think teachers are. Um, appropriately like uncomfortable with figuring out how to reimagine their spaces to make sure that mm. things that have come to light are being managed and um, evolving and, and their own practices evolving. And so I don't think we're alone. I don't know how many schools are across the country are, are doing this kind of intensity of work, but I, I know it's not just Castilea. Um, and I don't, I think there are public school districts doing a fair amount of work too. So my hope is that while people in my generation perhaps are able to sit back and, and sort of um, read books and maybe read mm. one more and have a book group, like the, there are the, the, the generation we're teaching right now is, is not interested in be, in learning in spaces that they know are, um, are not have have a meta narrative that's warped. <laughs> I think like they mm -hmm. they're calling people out. So I don't know how long we can just like sort of sit back and think it's gonna okay we're gonna because I think I think Gen Z is on it onto us. <laughs> they're gonna hold us oh, accountable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with yeah. that. <laughs> they already are right. I think that my like one of my favorite memories of this summer is that a couple of our students created a um, organized a protest in I think it was mm -hmm. June and just mm -hmm. hearing the student speakers call out explicitly call out educators 
that are afraid to talk about race Mm -hmm. in the classroom and truly saying like, what are you doing in the classroom then? One student named that. They're like, what are you doing in the classroom if you can't even talk about the fact that I am a black student? Like, is this the right, essentially, is this the right profession for you? If I am a black female student and you still say the word black as though it's a bad word, right? You are uncomfortable. We can see that you're uncomfortable saying it and naming it. Like, how are you going to teach us about systemic racism? How are you going to lead us in the classroom? And it's, mm-hmm. it's this moment where it's, I think that this generation is so ahead of us. They're ready for this. And the adults in the building have to like catch up to them. I mean, I think for me is helping adults, many that have never questioned, like if the conversation is new to you, you are mm-hmm. so deep in that rabbit hole that it's going to take a while to dig out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, and if that's okay, as long as you keep climbing and digging, you will eventually yeah. get out. But it's not until you get outside of the rabbit hole that you can actually see things for what they are. And I think what's interesting about young folks is I think they have a little better purchase on race as a series, as a set of ideas that's used yeah. to describe meaning. And, and I think they approach it, or they're starting to approach it like I do. It's a set of ideas, right? period. But it's a set of ideas that's used to obfuscate reality. And the re- and you, it's a box canyon. It'll only take you so far. And I think if we listen to the political rhetoric and some of the behaviors, we can see the limitations of this colorblind framing. It is actually not useful for mm-hmm. doing the kind of intellectual and social and political heavy lifting that we need to do right now. And part of that is because we're on the cusp of becoming a minority white nation. Mm-hmm for the first time in a long time. And so for me, we really have to be thinking about how these sets of ideas, how we all inhabit them so that we can understand our different experiences of racialization and use that as a pivot point for saying, we've gotten this far in spite of ourselves, but if Mm -hmm. we're able to unpack this Gordian knot and to use it almost as a reverse design platform, we can really unlock powerful, powerful thinking and a kind of social capital uh, and intellectual capital that this country has never yet uh, reaped the benefits of. So for me, it's actually a particularly hopeful time, hmm. even though it, you know it's got some people probably filling their shorts because it's because it's scary, right? The affective dimensions of unpacking one's worldview—that's uh, not a small thing. And I think most people will cling to uh, their understanding of the world because that's all they have, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they think it will fall apart. And, you know, at least in my work, my goal is to tear it apart. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the difference, and I'll go back to Stacy's school, is that they've been in a conversation for a long time. And so if you think about creating an intellectual um, armature or a scaffold of ideas, they've been in that work. So as yeah. if it is happening, they actually have places they can grab onto a little bit more effectively. And But like any community, they reflect a range of sets of lived experiences and understanding. But I think mm-hmm. their ability to stay in the conversation will be a function of them actually having purchase points that allow them to, uh, I use the word inhabit because it just feels um, conceptually more useful because it's not simply an intellectual understanding, it's an affectively or existentially rooted pivot, right? Mm-hmm that allows one to see the, to feel the dissonance is something that's generative and useful rather than something that they need to be terrified of, which is mm-hmm. where it will be when they first start the conversation. I mean, I think the emotional fear mimics real life fear, <laughs> right? Right. And so on a, on a cognitive intellectual level, yeah. if you're scared, you're living down in your amygdala, down in your brainstem. And that's not a particularly um, generative intellectual space. We've got to try to pull people you know, prefrontal, or at least get them to straddle uh, those domains. And once you can get people to sort of settle into the conversation, then they can do it. They can inhabit it over time like anything else. It's just a complicated conversation. And that's what makes it exciting to work with, but it's also makes it challenging. I, I think what, mm-hmm. what, what you made me think about was that we're talking about the, or at least I was initially thinking about the, right, the educators in yeah. that place. But if, if we take it back a notch, this is what our students have been living with, right? For generations, right. a whole a whole swath of them. And so 
they've been in this place of fear and a place of discomfort because we've been asking them to assimilate into a learning system that was not designed for them. And if they want to move through it, all they can do is like constantly like code switch or switch their behaviors or to, to manifest in a productive way in this system that was designed for them to fail. And so uh, it's, I think, some some students have said that to me. They're like plot twist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now it's your turn. That. Yeah. I so this makes me think about when in the panel that you guys were um, having the conversation that you had. You talked about when we say difficult conversations. You mentioned like difficult for who, right? And yeah. Stacy, you just talked about right. So not having the conversations creates a difficult classroom environment for BIPOC students, right? Like in in many ways, asking them to assimilate to a system that wasn't created for them is challenging and it's difficult and it can be painful. And so having these difficult conversations, these are difficult for oftentimes, you know, privileged teachers that are in positions of power. And so the question I have is then how do we do that? How do we encourage teachers to actually have these conversations that are difficult for them because we know that it creates a less difficult classroom environment for their students? And and Milton, you Mm -hmm. said, you know, the teachers that are in that hole, right? Like if this is a new concept to them or they're like so far in it, how can they begin to move themselves into a space where they can um, facilitate those conversations in a safe and meaningful way? So for me, part of it is actually getting clear why we're having the conversations in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think for me, as somebody who, is, who doesn't believe in essentialism, I know that the conversations are necessary for, this, for the cognitive development and the affective development of the students and enhancing their ability to hold different perspectives, right? You do that through shared meaning making. And so yeah. for me, my, my preoccupation with the classroom is turning it into sort of like a relational ecosystem in which communication is the primary currency, right? My responsibility as an educator is bringing in certain content because of what that does to provoke the conversation. But I think for, for educators, I mean, anybody who's in a classroom right now grew up in a colorblind space. And unless they worked hard to get out of it, we have to understand that their socialization is towards avoidance. Right. Right. And so their engagement with race has primarily been exculpatory. You know, they're virtue washing. I'm the good person. I'm here as an educator rather than understanding like these are complex sets of ideas in which we're like we're all trapped in the amber. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to get to that understanding first. But I do think that it is an existential experience. And that's for me, that's both an intellectual and affectively laden experience. And I think one of the ways to moderate the affective intensity of it is to use time as a structure. Hmm. And so having the conversations over time with other people, and the goal isn't just to read a book. Like, you know, I can remember former colleagues, you know, I would suggest them to read a book and then they come back. I read the book, you know, two days later, I'm like, well, that's, that's not the point. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you do the meaning making with other people and it's through that process. We be, that we begin to understand that we actually see and experience the world differently. And so it's not really a debate about whose lived reality is more important, but what are the implications for somebody else's lived reality in relationship to mine, right? I'm always thinking about the long-term application of knowledge, like outside of the classroom. And so how does this help yeah. you support um, leveraging what you learn, knowing that the context in which it un- unfolds or it plays out may be fundamentally different. And that's okay, as long as you understand that ideas have different applicability in different contexts. You're trying to help them build a intellectual schema that's rich and so it, it, it you're basically front-loading the possibilities of life that they'll encounter and giving them opportunities to engage around it so mm-hmm. for me educators we have to do that but we have to do that with the understanding that we were you know stacy said we got that you know melting pot narrative if you immigrated from europe great that that makes sense to me but if you emigrated to from some other part of the world right. you brought right. here uh, unwillingly or you were here in the first place being quote-unquote discovered you know, then that's a different, that's a different lived experience. And we shouldn't mm-hmm. impose the uniformity of one lived experience on the other, assuming it's universal, because it's not. 
right? That's mm-hmm. the crux of it. There is no universal experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things um, you mentioned really struck me. I just right now a lot of us have started school or about to start school, um, and just the, just the notion of like essentializing, like the process is what matters. Those conversations are what matter, and that's where the learning occurs. And I think it's important for any of our listeners who are you know currently working on your planning to really not forget that, right? It's really easy to say, like, I got to get to this content or this thing or that book or, you know, accomplish this skill or work on this essay or whatever the task may be. But you kind of miss the learning, I think. <laughs> Rewind this section, replay it again, um, because what is what actually matters in the end? That's it, right? The, the thing that um, I'm thinking about, the one word I would add to this that I've been hearing a little bit is how liberatory it is. Mm-hmm. Once people start to be vulnerable a little bit, like it doesn't take much to feel the value of the experience of sort of being curious instead of feeling mm-hmm. like you have to have an answer and leading with that sense of interest in how somebody else might have a different narrative of the exact same shared experience. And so one of the things that I found really practically on a practical level helpful um, is to offer educators a space to feel and be in in a very low stakes professional development environment um, before they need to take it into their classrooms where- They obviously, um, it feels high stakes. I mean, people are, are invested in their work. They care deeply mm-hmm. about their students, which is why what Milton said and what you're saying is so meaningful because we want to do right by all the students. Mm-hmm. We just sometimes don't, we can grow in how we do it. We, we aren't always mm-hmm. as effective as we want to be. So I think a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people want to evolve their practice. But if you don't have the words and you don't have, the, mm-hmm. you just like, you feel paralyzed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think it's very it's very hard to take that first risk in the place where you want to do no harm. And probably you shouldn't take the first risk in a place where you want to do no harm. And so, you know, you have to find other circles to do it. in. so creating those spaces is really important. And whether it's with colleagues, which is what Milton's helping and has helped us do at Castilea for several years, which is why I think he said, you know, we've been in the work for a while. So as messy and hard as it seems, I feel like we can keep pushing through it because people have felt the liberation of um, mm. becoming a little bit more vulnerable and then what it builds with their students once they do it. Um, mm-hmm. And also the tools to repair. I think people do need a little bit of help. Um, we all do like, understanding how to effectively repair things because then it makes it more straightforward to take the risk because you know like I know what to do if this doesn't work out quite as I anticipated yeah actually it's a great place to pause real quick and we'll take a short break and come right back this is producer Doug of the channel 253 podcast network channel 253 is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University PLU probably doesn't need any introduction. They've been part of the Tacoma community since 1890. Maybe your kids went there. Hey, maybe you went there. Go Lutes! But if you're thinking about revamping your career or launching a second career, have you thought about PLU for a master's program? PLU offers a dozen master's degrees and postgraduate certificates. And get this, some of them can be completed in as little as nine months. Get your master's in education and become someone's favorite teacher. Get your MFA and unleash your inner poet. Or focus on the body and how it works with the new master's in kinesiology. Applications for all master's programs are on a rolling basis. For more information, visit plu.edu graduate to learn more. PLU, for the next step in your career. So welcome back, everybody. Um, Stacy. something that when I was watching your conversation, your panel, um, one of the things that actually really stood out to me was what you just said before the break is the do no harm. And so many teachers want to focus on the do no harm, right? Like they're so afraid of harming that they choose to not engage at all. And um, 
I guess, I, which, like, which I think can be harming, right? Sorry oh, to interrupt completely. you. Completely, yeah. Right. Okay, we're all on the same page that that actually is, is harmful. The, <laughs> yes, the, the ignoring or like the, um, the willing ignoring of the problem is very harmful to our students, right? But it's like, it's almost as though teachers become paralyzed by that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you talked a bit about your working with Milton in terms of how to have those conversations with teachers, right? Like your fellow colleagues. And I wonder how what advice maybe you both have for teachers that are working in schools that aren't having these conversations, one, and two, are working with colleagues that don't feel the urgency or the necessity of having these conversations. Like what, what can they maybe do or should they approach those conversations or should it just kind of be like, well, I'm just going to focus on my own classroom. So it's, so, I mean, I think for me, it's, schools are subject to the vagaries of its structures, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have a structure in place, conversations aren't likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And so as you're thinking about moving ideas across a community, it's important to think about the structures that are at, at one's disposal, whether those are staff development hours, yeah. do you have shared planning times, how do you think about the level meetings and all those kinds of things, and then use those as places to situate the conversations. I think what's exciting about some of the work that's happening at Castilea is that we're moving that conversation actually out to the parents as well. So this year we'll be doing a series of exchanges over the course of the year with the parent, with parents. Um, there will be some book groups. And so, you know, I said, you know, it's not about reading a singular book. And so I want to sort of step back from the ledge just a little bit and say that there are really important books to be reading and engaging with. But I think it's not just the content of the book. It's actually the process of shared meaning making that's important. So mm-hmm. for me, the work is, you know, the work is really that conditioning, if you will, of having yeah. conversation, right? And getting, because the, pro, the shifting people into this idea that we really are talking about ideas, but that, that these ideas have powerful implications, not just for our students, but for ourselves. And I think part of it is mm-hmm. that, I mean, we see all this, so it's just, I'm going to take this in a weird direction, but hopefully it reconnects. So I'm thinking about the way that the trauma narrative has become this essentializing um, narrative, which illuminates the sort of deficit framing yep. of kids, right? Or that the trauma resides in them. And I'm not suggesting that some students aren't subject to systematic and sustained experiences of privation, you know, that are rooted in the material worlds that they uh, navigate. But the idea that they don't develop compensatory strategies mm-hmm. that are very sophisticated uh, for navigating is absurd. And in fact, yeah. our students in many cases have far more sophisticated skills and capacities to understand than their, than their teachers who haven't had to do that kind of navigating because of their different societal positionality, which can, we can trace back to redlining and a, and a variety of other sort mm-hmm. of structural factors. But I think, um, so part of it is just understanding that our students have a greater facility because of who they are in the world that they're growing up in. I think, you know, their interest in dating and mating. I mean, I think your kids are just living in a fundamentally different world full of different sets of opportunities that our parents might have inhabited. Mm-hmm. So they're interested in these conversations because they have real life, you know, um, application. Yeah. But for teachers who grew up in the, like, again, in this sort of colorblind yeah. space, I know that this is a process. And I think as much as we can systematize conversations, uh, what you're doing is you're creating uh, a learning space in which the teacher's lack of skill or understanding doesn't become an impediment mm-hmm. to students engaging around content that's relevant. And once you're in that place, you can start to think about what does it look like to construct a vertical conversation across four years or six years, whatever whatever have you, because you have curriculum. So your curriculum then becomes um, grist for the mill. So if you're thinking about racialization is a complex and capacious set of ideas that includes gender, class, disability, queerness, indigeneity, mm-hmm. uh, race as we understand it, and all these other things. It takes time to inhabit that, right? And yeah. we have it, schools. We have time, right? So if you're thinking about having that conversation over several years, mm-hmm. you have plenty of time. So let's take a couple deep breaths. Let's slowly consume some information that will help us understand um, the richness of these conversations and then think about how do we uh, transform our curriculum and content such that it's actually inviting the conversations rather than trying to. Mm-hmm. And that just takes time. And, and, mm-hmm. and as, as Stacy said, the rewards start to show up pretty quickly. 
And I think as an educator, there's nothing more exciting when your classroom is popping, you know, and people are yeah. and they're having conversations and they're pushing beyond the, um, you know, the boundaries of the content. That's what you want them to do, right? So for me, there's a lot that we get in return as educators, you know, for ourselves, but most importantly, it's for our students. Yeah, I love part of what I'm hearing you say um, is just not letting the teacher's lack of experience get in the way of having these rich conversations. And I just love that framing because Mm -hmm. I often and we've often talked on this this podcast, just kind of the other direction, which is a little bit of the like, um, it's too bad that we have so many teachers who are disconnected and don't understand and are wrestling. And it's at, at the detriment of students. On the other hand, it's really interesting to think about how do we set up our PD set up our conversations um, to help empower, I don't know if empower is the right word, but to help these teachers so that their lack of knowledge and ability and skill set maybe is not, is not getting in the way and kids can still have those conversations. And maybe, maybe it's about, I don't know, maybe it's about the growth mindset of the, of the educator who's quote unquote leading the way or running that classroom. Um, Maybe it's the disposition. I think we talked about this in our panel, just like we're in this together with students, right? It's why we have Socratic seminars with kids. It's why we, like, they're leading those conversations um, and deferring to them as experts as well. So I, I don't know if that's part of this, but what you said reminded me a bit about no, that. No, I think it's totally part of it. I even, um, if you listen to Milton for as many years as I have, many words keep popping up, which good, because then they sort of infiltrate your being. But one that is, I, I heard from the very beginning when I started working with him was this idea of co-creation, right? That mm. we're the mm-hmm. co-creators of knowledge. And um, I think that, I, I, I think different teachers probably run Socratic seminars different ways, but I think it's really important if you're running a seminar, for instance, to actually, as you sit in it, to really consider yourself a learner as the educator. Mm-hmm. So you're not just, con- so I think that most people who run them I don't know this for a fact, but, um, but we're like, everything's fake news these days. So like, who knows? <laughs> but um, Here we go. Stace, this is like, um, I have another colleague I work with who's, who's talks about the discourse of uninformed certainty. So perhaps this, this is it. But um, I think a lot of people, like they create the space where the kids can learn from each other and they can like practice this mm-hmm. dialogue. Um but what the educator is sitting there and, and sort of sitting back and witnessing. And I think really you have to go in with the mindset of I am part of the learning. Something's going to be yeah. uncovered today that um, will help me grow in my practice. And so I think that that is that cognitive shift and that shift in in your very being as a teacher um, that's where the liberatory space comes in. Mm-hmm. And that's where you begin to um, not worry about what do I know? What don't I know? You begin to wonder what questions should we all be asking? Mm-hmm. And when you start to ask sh- questions that everybody's invested in answering, you, you, can, you can shift your whole podcast. Your podcast mm-hmm. doesn't have to be about like, what are these teachers who, mm-hmm. who aren't, um, who don't have enough practice to make their classroom safe into um, who are these human beings on the planet and how can we all shift gears to, um, to just like be in a different headspace because you really don't have to know a lot. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of wisdom in the room. If you if you realize how much positionality is in the room Um, and the do no harm piece is about not being afraid. Well, one, one part of it is about not being afraid to say, oh, wow, we really need to examine this further. And I actually think Mm -hmm. I need to go and do some thinking about this or Mm -hmm. bring in another voice that has more expertise or that is the very best modeling we can do for Mm -hmm. the future of of this partisan nation and frankly, partisan Mm -hmm. planet that we're living in, I believe. And so what you just said makes me think about um, one of the common themes that I saw in the chat when you guys were having your conversation was the fear of what if students that hold racist ideas and beliefs speak up in the classroom, right? And so as a teacher, you're creating, and I agree, like co-creating knowledge, right? And you're Mm -hmm. facilitating these conversations and you are a learner as well. But then I think that what a lot of teachers are wondering is though, how do you step into the role of adult in those moments where there's damaging 
ideas and thoughts and beliefs that are brought forward, right? And we're like, and you just saying like this, the partisan world that we're living in, right? So like, we're, we're very much in this, like present all sides society right now, where it's like reporters, like elevating the ideas of Nazis Mm -hmm. and opinion pieces by the Proud Boys and right. And so we're in this place where that's what it feels like that there's a platform for it. So how do educators in those moments continue to create a safe space, but also center the safety of students of color in that moment and not the safety of white students that are saying racist things? Mm-hmm. So glad you asked that question. I'm going to, I know Milton is, has some thoughts about it, but because he's nodding, but um, I, I'm just really grateful for that question because that, that's really an important one. Are you going to say something about it? <laughs> no, I want to know what you're going to say, but I just want to validate that I'm really like, it's the question, right? Yeah, because it's, it's yeah. about like, how do you get to be you? And then also, um, and honor the use in the room, but also make sure that we actually have a moral compass and we're moving the needle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so for me, there's a couple things. One is to understand that that framing that we're still in is reflective of this sort of colorblind space in which all identities are mm-hmm. positioned as universal. So it's not about understanding why people have those sets of ideas, because if identity is presented as universal, then our assumption is that everybody's having the same lived experience that we are, and therefore they're all of the same value. So I'm not suggesting that people's lived experiences do have hierarchical value, but they do reflect different experiences of hierarchical positioning, right? And so if you yeah. know that, that's helpful. So you have to know that. So you can't, you, that's why teachers have to do their work, because what they will reassert is that universalist sort of set of assumptions, which makes space for those ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been in the work long enough to where I'm not afraid of those things surfacing only because I know that that's part of the process. And I know that that's the set of ideas that I'm after. And so when it surfaces, it's just evidence that it's around us. And I actually think that, you know, what the evidence around implicit bias suggests is that we actually all hold these ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. Some of us are more aware of it than others. And so that means us as educators as well. I mean, I can generate the list of stereotypes like everybody else can, right? So let's just be honest about that. Having said that, when I'm thinking about the longer fetch of a conversation, it's it's like navigating a, a long turn with decreasing radius. You know, you're not looking right in front of you. You're looking at the end of that arc where you're headed. And I think it's important mm-hmm. to communicate in a classroom that we're actually headed someplace and that part of our journey is these uncomfortable moments Um where we might feel uncomfortable. And if we're strong pedagogically, there are moments in which everybody's feeling uncomfortable because we're peeling this back. This is not a left or right thing. When you think about the depth of our conditioning towards essentialism, um, that's the basic foundations of our society, right? And so we we can expect that. You know, I've done a lot of work with law enforcement and I've also been on the receiving end of a lot of negative law enforcement interaction, right? But practice helps you know so I can sit in the fire I'm not afraid because I know what's happening and so I think um that's one thing Mm. I do think if we see things happening in our classroom we we have to call it out you know we can talk about we could be hard on the ideas not on each other right Uh, we can reassert like a lot of times when the conversation gets really amped up and I can tell people are sliding back into their brain stems I might actually cause for a pause and ask for us all just to take a couple deep breaths and notice what we're feeling, like where we situate mm-hmm. that in our bodies, right? Look around, look around. These are the same colleagues we've been with, you know, all year. Nobody's going to be thugging on anybody. We're not there, but notice that we're feeling a little bit amped up and affectively um, opened up, right? That's part of the dimensions of this learning. So we name it, we acknowledge it, and then we move forward, right? And I'm actually curious. I'm going to turn the turn the tables on you. I'd be curious what the two of you do when you find yourselves in those situations. Um, right. So I think one. Uh, I run out. I just leave the class. Right. I just leave. Say I'm taking I'm a break. Bye, guys. Go to the bathroom. And some coffee. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for coming. We're done here. <laughs> so one thing that I have like really found very helpful is defining what these things actually are before we have the conversations. And so like, I always think about the quote by Ibram X. Kendi of definitions anchor us in principles, 
right? And so I, before, like at the beginning of the year, we define what is racism, right? So racism is not this like finite thing. It's not, the, it's not one thing, right? There is a spectrum of racism. There is a spectrum of isms, right? There's a spectrum of sexism, right? That looks a lot of different, like it looks like a lot of different things. And so I think that I try to do that. I'm not gonna lie, like I'm still a fairly new teacher. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm still new in this game. Um, but I have found that to be very, very useful and very powerful because I love what you said. It's like hard on the ideas and not each other, right? If you define mm -hmm. it, if you are clear on what this, what it means, it's easier to interrogate the idea behind it rather than the person behind it. And so at least mm -hmm. that is my, right now, my number one tool that I use. I don't know if I do it well in the moment. I'm going to be really honest. <laughs> Um, but I five. Yeah, I think we talked before about um, what you're kind of hinting at, Megan, around just like having those expectations up or like this is how we're going to have this discussion. And so I think if you can have that stuff posted, then, you know, um, we talk about um, – like a third point that you can kind of refer back to and help remind. So oftentimes during Socratic seminar discussions, I'll have that just listed up there. Right. And so that reminds me too, as a teacher, like, okay, I can, I can go back to this. I love your point about pausing and breathing. Um, I don't think I do that enough necessarily, or like have people kind of step back, um, but more emphasize, you know, we're discussing ideas, not attacking people. Um, and, you know, how do we de debunk those ideas? I think kind of back to the point about students being uh, really, every, I think every class students are coming with, like you said, so much experience and so much um, expertise that we often forget that we can tap into them. And so I, I think back to some of the weirdest, wildest, most of like what happened, was this, where is this conversation going discussions? And I think about the students who really helped kind of ground me. So what space that I created that they felt comfortable enough to be able to speak up, but also like they're just coming with their expertise from their own life experiences and their own, you know, um, like abilities. And I, I just think about a couple, I have some, like some faces in my mind. I have a couple of really strong, amazing women who, girls who've, who've stepped up in those classes and have pushed back, you know, and then I can use that or they've kind of helped create that space. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that student, if you create a space where students can feel confident and safe in arguing with each other and discussing and understand that that's okay to do that, then I think when you have, I don't, I don't want to say wild, but when you have racist comments pop up or when you have this like bizarre um, statements popping up that you know are, are messed up, you can help kind of use that to shift it back. Um, that's kind of how I've approached it, but it hasn't always, I mean, it hasn't always worked necessarily. I mean, I think the interesting is sometimes when those things surface, they don't surface with a lot of animus. They surface out mm -hmm. of ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know what we know, we don't know what we don't know, right? And that's, that's true of all of us. So we don't have to be too worried about it. Yeah. Other than say that the goal is to shift that understanding, right? All of our students should come out of our classrooms less impoverished than they came in, at least in terms of their understanding of these sets of ideas. And so part yeah. of that is actually anticipating and setting up the conversation so that you don't all of a sudden stumble into it. You're actually inviting the conversation. And I think because we invite the conversation and we don't jump on somebody the moment they utter something that feels a little bit uncomfortable or foul or whatever, we're giving them an opportunity to learn. It's sort of like mm -hmm. you want to create a call-in culture. Mm -hmm. I want people to be able to be authentic enough to reveal what they understand or misunderstand, but not use it to pillory them. Say, mm -hmm. okay, like what you, that's something you said, you know, landed a little bit odd. Is it possible that, you know, there's another perspective on it? Or can you imagine how mm -hmm. someone might experience what you just said, right? We're not going to beat you up. You're part of the class. We're making yeah. you together, right? And so I think that takes time and, and it takes self-awareness. Yeah. You know, because we can get triggered in conversations as well. I mean, people will say some stuff and sometimes people can be antagonistic. That was certainly true of the work, you know, years ago uh, when people were fully ensconced in their colorblind space, you know, because what mm -hmm. happens is they become defensive and oftentimes transgressive because yeah. unpacking their schema. Mm -hmm. The other thing is actually telling that, like, I'm after your schema, right? That's that's my job. That's all of our teachers' yeah. job, actually. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Teach, you're trying to expand their understanding of something, and I just I just get explicit about it, right? Mm -hmm. But I want them to have the discovery. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll stop 
prattling on because I know Stacey's got something cool. No, I was just thinking, well, two things. I wanted to um, first reflect back to hope that my old, my older daughter, my younger daughter, who is um, a senior in high school this year, watched our webinar and um, heard you talk about how you start class and send this letter to your students and sort of say like, here, here's the framing. And I think that's what you and Megan are talking about, sort of the ideas that you mm-hmm. are gonna unpack, et cetera, and, and where the line is for you. Um, and, and that does create an opportunity to build trust. And she has a, the way, you know, how, whatever's going on at school with the, our advisory program, she has a group of ninth graders she works with. And she said, I'm going to do what hope does. And mm. I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, I'm actually going to create the buckets for the, our norm setting at the beginning of the year around things that I want to make sure we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I'm going to ask them like, what norms do they want around that? But I know we won't miss out if it's like, what are we going to do? And, you know, so there were sort of questions. And one of them interestingly was, um, like what moods are okay in the classroom. Hmm. And and I thought that was an interesting thing to then juxtapose that with like, what are the ways we're going to talk about um, when we feel, you know, I don't think she used the word triggered. It was a better word than that, but like, that's what she was talking <laughs> yeah. about. Um, and I think what I felt there, first of all, inspired by you. So thank you. You're making oh, that's her awesome. practice better. Thanks. But I think what, um, what I felt there was, you know, her interest in understanding and co-creating with this group of ninth graders she was going to work with, like what, how did they want to be called in, mm-hmm. right? And then how yeah. are they going to call her in? Yeah. And when you yeah. normalize that, that is a little bit how you build trust. Because the one thing I think, I, I mean, I really appreciate what, obviously what Milton's been saying. And then I just, the thing that keeps going through my mind is the moment when there is like just a downright racist statement in the classroom that like from a student that, you know, like everyone else is, or a lot of other people are feeling like viscerally charged by. And, um, and it's really hard in that moment as a teacher to Mm -hmm. feel like to sort of shift it to, this is about the world of ideas when like you feel the tears like Mm -hmm. welling up in inside of everyone. And and you kind of feel like, no, this is about like, you're just being a, jerk right now and we need to unpack this and understand why but I also have to honor that right now like there's so much emotion in the room and I and that is yes the pause breathe moment but it can't be let's pause and breathe because we have different opinions it has to be let's pause and breathe and breathe through what we know just happened which doesn't align with the norms we set up at the beginning of the year so we Mm -hmm. are going to challenge the discussion here But, and I think like, that's where the do no harm piece comes in. And that's the hardest Mm. moment because, um, because instinctively we don't want to, we don't want to shame someone, but if we don't, if they don't feel that the rest of the class is harmed, yes, they don't see the public moment of saying, this is not okay. That the, so who are you protecting and who are you harming? And that's where, um, so for me, that's how this all comes together. The setup at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. the um, the shared norms and expectations so that when the rest of, when the damage happens, everyone knows like, this is okay that the teacher's calling this out or we're going to do it. Cause sometimes teachers miss stuff, right? Like I, we yeah. all, have, and for the other kids to do it. anyway, that for me, that's the progression to this, to mm-hmm. these different kinds of moments. You have to do the work up front, but you also have to figure out like, the harm is not just how shame the perpetrator would feel. The harm is also how silenced everyone experiencing yeah. the, the pain and feels. Yeah. I love the way you said that. Cause I keep thinking, I mean, the, the, the kids are kids. They're young, they're young people. Right. So like a 15 year old doesn't have the same development in some regards as someone who's, you know, 30 years in six years in whatever. Right. So I, I think we also have to remember that, right. Like as we're calling people into it, but I love what you just said as if you've set the norms up, you've set the expectations, you can have this really positive call in culture that also keeps everybody else safe. Cause I think that's where I've seen and, and aired myself on that, right. Where I either let something go or came down too harshly. Cause I couldn't figure out how to balance, especially early on in my career. Um, and I'm still learning with that, but like, how do you hold those things in place? But you 
also are responsible to protecting the 28 other students in your class or however many that are there and making sure that they their safety um, is not harmed. Yeah, I think so. Something that I think is really interesting of what you just said, Stacey, and then Milton, you said when talking about colleagues and within a school is that you both have really emphasized having a structure in place right? Like there is, there's a structure in place. There are expectations in place that this is what it's going to be and norm setting. And that's something that you all three emphasized in your conversation on the panel as well as like this idea of norm setting, um, which I think is really what I'm hearing is key, right? Is, is one of the most important parts of this work when having these conversations in the classroom. So my question then is I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so how is my practice gonna have to change in this coronavirus virtual learning is, so then how can teachers begin to do this virtually? Because it already feels on like this extremely challenging thing to do in person when I have so much control in my four walls of my classroom mm-hmm. in terms of tone setting and just like the feeling and vibe and community. So how can teachers even begin to tackle this online across Zoom? Is it possible? What what are some things that they need to keep in mind? I would say, you know, for me, pedagogy does a lot of the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. right? So you want to create a student-centered pedagogy, right? And so you want to use structures that balance speaking and listening because that will help them to feel that, it's co- that their experiences are co-constructed and they'll actually mm-hmm. guard and protect them once they feel that that space is theirs. And so it's no different than if we were in a classroom. I mean, my goal, my first goal in a classroom is to set my students free of me. They know I'm not going anywhere, but I want them to be the ones doing the meaning making. All right. And for me, that's all about pedagogical choices that decenter me um, as the teacher and actually center each, recenter them around each other. And so I think, you know, depending on the software that people are using, you can you know, use your breakout rooms, but be very thoughtful about the pedagogical choices, things like say the last word for me, learn to listen, listen to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just simple stuff like three, two, ones. I mean, there's a number of ways in which you can take really common pedagogical strategies, but if you think about them first as things that help you, first of all, draw knowledge from the participants and then find ways to reconstruct it as a collective, that's the goal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want—I don't want to get through this through this conversation without sort of highlighting some of the work that Stacy and her colleagues done at Castellay around their core competencies. It goes back mm-hmm. to something that I think I've heard both of you say, um, you know, Megan and Hope about having some shared knowledge or some shared understanding. Uh, and Stacy's done a lot of work, you know, to pull together a set of key competencies that I'm already seeing teachers leverage. Uh, in ways that I think are going to be really useful. So do you want to say something about that, Stacey? Because I think it's actually pretty profound and significant that you, the, the work, that work that you've done. Oh, thank you. The ultimate compliment. Um, well, I think I'll share what they are. So having been in lots of these conversations, um, I just started really writing down what, what I was hearing from podcasts like this and, you know, from Coffee Talk with Milton, et cetera. Um, and the, it, it came down to five key ideas, I think for me personally, and, and then I think for all of us that we've, we've cordoned on to valuing competing narratives. Like mm. if you, if we, as, as a community can, as teachers think about what are the competing narratives in everything I'm teaching or in the, the way people think about, frankly, like the success of black girls in math. Right. Mm-hmm. There's like all these different competing narrative narratives. This isn't just for a history classroom. Um, moving beyond essentialism. You heard Milton mm-hmm. talk a lot about essentialism, but having a definition for what that is and then thinking deeply about um, how how in every moment can I complicate what we're doing, probably by adding a competing narrative so that we can move beyond the essentialized structure. And then sitting with dissonance, right? So that's the third one. It's going to feel uncomfortable when these competing narratives take us beyond an, an essentialized idea that um, feel, that we've been used to and we've used to structure the way we go in the world, to design our assessments, right? Like all these things, like suddenly it's going to feel uncomfortable. And we're not going to quite know what to do. And um, the next one, the fourth one is understanding positionality, right? Mm-hmm. So 
within all of this dissonance, like, and these narratives, what's my position? Who am I in this moment? What baggage am I bringing with me? What essentialized ideas am I bringing with me? And then the commitment. And this is um, riffing off Lori Santos's work at Yale University in the Culture of Happiness class, but committing to rewire. She talks a lot about rewiring and she's talking about that in terms of mindset and happiness. But um, if we think of happiness as liberatory, like it totally works. And so this notion to commit to rewire so that every time you, you are in this essentialized moment, you really try and understand like what or look for and be curious about what narrative am I missing? And you're missing mm-hmm. many, right? And, and that's where the co-creation piece like is amplified because all you have to do is ask. And Mm -hmm. someone in the room has another perspective from a different positionality. So Mm -hmm. they fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. They're, they're, they're not even a Venn diagram. They're like loaded right on top of each other. And you live in all of these things. But um, I think naming them has been very helpful because now um, we just have a a language to talk about what it's empower. It gives you permission to say, I don't know everything right now that I'm supposed to teach you because there's no way possible because these other things are how the world works. And so hmm. um, we, there's a richness that we can only get to if you bring it. And it's very inclusive and it calls people in um, and you don't feel called out as quite as much if you have forgotten a narrative because somebody's just like, let me add something here, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that that is how we've launched the year this year, finally naming some of the things that I think I just thought about a lot and and was trying to do intuitively, but hadn't put down on paper. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's been helpful. Um, We actually have to wrap up, but (laughs) I'm just like sitting with what you're saying, kind of nodding, having been just the last couple of days, everything that y'all have been talking about. I'm just like, yep, trying to work on that, trying to work on that, (laughs) trying to figure out how to navigate that online (laughs) yeah but you inspired Um, a whole some kid in a classroom in california i know it's so cool i appreciate that you're doing it already well and it's so funny because i've just been doing the common agreements this week with all of my classes and trying to figure out how to differentiate that for 10th graders to have to elicit the kinds of conversation right and then what does that look like for juniors and seniors because their development's different and so, you know, using different platforms to make that happen. I use Jamboard, s- side note, uh, Google Suites there with my sophomores, which turned out great. But then I use Padlet with my juniors and seniors because they were they were going to write more anyway, you know. <laughs> and so just like just how to how to um, adjust that. But, yeah, this has been a very encouraging conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any other kind of final thought either of you are lingering on that you want to make sure we we touch on briefly or just kind of throw out there for people to, to sit with? I mean, mine is we're going to be in this moment for a while. So this is a paradigmatic shift. Uh, it's tectonic in nature. And I think we have to be patient with ourselves um, mm-hmm. as we learn how to inhabit the space. But actually to know that we're going to we're going to need these skills for the work ahead. I mean, the current moment is ugly uh, and it's revealing of what we've avoided. And so we don't have any choice but to do the work. And so mm-hmm. I think that for any educator that thinks this is, you know, reading a couple books and they'll be done in a couple, you know, weeks. It's maybe time to look for a different profession. Um, yeah. You know, maybe that's the shame bell ringing time, right? Right. Because, hey, Doug, ring it. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know because, you like, because at the end of the day, this, what I would say is this, as educators, we can't squander the moment or our our right. position. There's yeah. nobody who's better positioned in society to help us do the work that we need to mm-hmm. do. And we have to understand that. And so if we're not up to that work. That's okay then get out of the way, right? Because if that's the case, get out of the way Mm -hmm. because you're an impediment to to the future. Mm -hmm. Now, you're scared uh, and jittery. Again, take a couple breaths, shoulder up with some colleagues and and stay stay in the saddle because eventually it'll feel like you're you're riding well and you're riding powerfully. But just know that that's a transition and it's one that people are going to have to make. It's going to feel weirder for some than others, but it's one that we can make if we're focused on why we're doing it. And that ultimately it makes us better as teachers. It actually will make us better and more powerful in giving students access to knowledge. And so I think it's, there's a lot in it for us, uh, but it's also about taking care of our students and mitigating the potential harm that we can, we can, uh, can create. Mm -hmm. That's good. Stacey, any final thoughts lingering? I just say game on. Like I, I know. I think Milton wrapped it up 
beautifully. And I'm just really grateful awesome. to you guys for having podcasts like this and sort of creating a shared conversation across the airwaves. Um, it's, it's how the magic happens and it's how we evolve. So thank you. It's been fun. It's been fun. Appreciate your work. Yeah. We appreciate you both coming on and taking the time to talk with us. Megan, do you want to um, say your famous line? Oh, the do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. So we're yeah. this our our um, our final segment of do your fudging homework. So is there anything that you want to say to the listeners of follow up work that they can do um, around this topic? Anything that you've found to be really helpful? Um, Brian Stevenson, you know, talks a lot of who, yeah. who wrote Just Mercy, right? Talks a lot about getting proximate. I feel like that's that's the only way to do this work is to get proximate with people. And so, you know, if you don't want to start with your students, figure out who that person is and do your mm-hmm. fudging homework. Get proximate with someone <laughs> and um, push push your understanding of something you thought you understood. Yeah, perfect. And I would say wrap your head around the history of eugenics. If you really want to understand essentialism, start to learn about the history of eugenics and a book that I've always loved and it sort of flipped my lid and continues to is Alexander Ministern's Eugenic Nation, Faults in Front mm-hmm. of Better Breeding in Modern America. Um, because that has huge implications for the, the systems that we inhabit. It's actually rooted in eugenic thought. So our essentialist commitments are rooted in eugenics. And actually our school system is, is just, it's just baked to the core. And so we actually have to understand that to understand our positionality within a system. And then we have to understand that in terms of our positionality and relationship to each other. But that will help people understand that that race is a set of ideas that's been constructed mm-hmm. and narrated over time. And if you understand it as a false story, then you can begin to reclaim the true story. And that, that comes through exposure and access to counter narratives. Mm-hmm. And together we're mighty. So that's the goal, you know, is to is to learn about each other, learn about what puts us, keeps us apart. And then to begin to reimagine the future in which these things aren't strictures that are stifling our lives and and our imaginations. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. I think we'll just end it on that. Thank you again for coming on the show. We appreciate you both. Thank you. Take care. Be well. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.